We were convinced the first few days as we became government that we'd be a th three-year Labour government. Oh, New Zealand was stuffed. It was, it was just dreadful. I couldn't win. My job was to save the furniture. The pork was, was broken, people wouldn't work, they wanted long holidays, but we didn't have them, we kept working. As long as we provided a united front, you win. You don't, you lose. I couldn't believe the lack of courage by these people. And they know they should work for you. And they know they should make a stand. And they're silent. That is the lack of courage. I said to Roger, why don't we sell the country to the Japanese? Roger did go a bit off. You probably don't believe in class. I do. The greatest betrayal we can make of our people is not to care. We care. I'm proud of what the Labour Party's done, and we can do it again. When the coup came, and I knew she had the numbers, that's why I brought it on, they had all my staff in a row, people you know, people you like, people who now got good jobs in government services. Scissors cut all their cards and told them to leave that day. Does politics have to be that brutal? Oh, probably, you know, probably. I was brutal too in my day, I suppose. Mike Moore's time as leader of the Labour Party came to an abrupt end less than a month after the 1993 election, rolled by his deputy, Helen Clark. Back in 1990, he'd been Prime Minister for only 59 days, then spent three years as leader of the opposition, trying to rebuild a fractured Labour Party, torn apart by Rogernomics. But the coup still came, even though, against all expectations, he had led Labour from 29 seats to 45 seats at that 1993 election, and nearly won. That was a huge gamble. And it came off. I mean, we were back in the ring. We were within a couple of seats winning. I thought after the election we'd be cheered at, cheered, hey. <laughs> I might have got thanked and then, then axed. <laughs> but the ax went before even thank yous. I was furious because um, I could see what would happen. And it was a hell of a fight. Um, the caucus was broken. People wouldn't work. They wanted long holidays. Because they were exhausted. The bloody party and the members were exhausted. Were they trying to engineer it so you would lose and Helen Clark would take over? Is that effective? Oh. Was it that simple or is that going too far? It's probably going. Yeah, no, it was that simple. And you believed you'd earned another shot. You'd got through I thought whiskey. we had actually. And I was busy at the time. Um, going around the seats we just lost. And I didn't pay attention, and this was my fault, um, to the caucus. And then there were no phone calls or anything. Was never, they never said anything. The, um, and then I thought, buggy, I'm not going to fight this way. I just, if, you, if you're going to do this, you're going to have it. These MPs are so weak not even prepared to let you sit in the parliament and hear you speak. What is it like to lose power? Well, I hardly had it, you know. <laughs> um, being led to the opposition is not power. What do you want to say 
uh, about Helen Clark's role ring, at that ring time. Ring me. <laughs> ring us. Um, it's it's have, okay. It's, it's it's natural. You haven't talked. Oh, no, we never talked until the chop came. Did you still harbour that vision to be prime minister? Oh, no, I know. I thought um, when Helen took it, I wouldn't. I should, should have learned from the Australians that you can bounce back, but I, I couldn't bounce back. I knew that my heart was broken. I believed in the Labour Party so much and I couldn't believe in the, in the lack of courage by these people, the, the lack of guts. In the end, it's the silence of your friends that keeps you, that, that you remember, not the misdeeds of those who dislike you. The Labour Party has been Mike Moore's lifelong love. He grew up poor, left school at 14 and got into Parliament aged just 23, one of the country's youngest ever MPs. He would eventually rise to head the World Trade Organisation, the highest international position ever held by a New Zealander, and became a respected champion of globalisation. Yet the path there was never easy. At 30, he had aggressive cancer and was given just months to live. At 40, he was given two months to save a government. It's 1990. The David Longy Roger Douglas government lies in ruins. The switch to Geoffrey Palmer a year earlier hasn't worked, so a desperate caucus turns to Mike Moore to save their seats. I couldn't win. My job was to save the furniture. A number had come to see me before, um, six months earlier, or I don't know. You know, it was just common talk. I said, no, get out of it. You've got a leader, back him. Well, the polls were in free fall. We, were, we did some polling, we would have lost any hunger, for God's sake. And I decided to do it. Why did you decide to Because I thought I could pick it. the boat up by a couple of 10, 5%, 10%. To save enough so we could get back in six or nine years. There were dangers. Because the cold political calculation might well have been to... Yes. Let Palmer lose and then pick up with a fresh slate 90, uh, after the 90 yes. election. Why did you not take that course? Um, because I thought the, we were terminal. Do you remember the feeling when the numbers were yours and you had the job as Prime Minister? Do you remember that? Look, we had nothing going. There were things un unanswered. The policy wasn't formatted. There was no money. All the things. We just closed the showdown and went for it. Did you allow yourself a moment of thinking... My God, I'm the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I must have, but I didn't. I can't think of that. I don't think of that shining moment. No? No. Again, a former advisor we spoke to said it's a bit like, you know, being subbed on to the, to the All Blacks in the last ten minutes of your life. You'd always wanted to play for the All Blacks, always yeah. wanted to be Prime Minister. Well, that's Is it true. a bit like that? It's, that's true. Um, but I was thinking three, six years out and having the party in a position where it could fight. Did you get to enjoy any of being Prime Minister or was it just flat-tack campaigning at that point? I enjoyed the DPS guys, a good bunch of people. As it got worse and worse. We had no money, our... Um, Yvonne's mother, Yvonne, and I made the sandwiches for the party on Saturday night, on Friday night. And we went to the party yeah, it was a night, eh? 
and the GPS guys say, actually I've forgotten this the other night. I remember when you lost the election, oh yeah, he said you were sweeping the floor out afterwards. I said, yeah, so what? That's the way it is. Sweeping the floor of the hall where we yeah. had the wake. You were probably the last working class prime minister we had. Probably, probably, um, just a working class boy. Um, I remember reading an article, my mother, interview with my mother, and she said in 1951, the waterside strike, she pushed a pram round Kawakawa and under, under the... <laughs> under me, and I was two years old, the Labour Party leaflets to push out because they were illegal. 51. So she's pretty staunch. And, uh, and she taught me a lot too. You grew up uh, above a shop, was it a second hand shop in Kalakaua? Uh, below a shop, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there were holes in the wall, floor which were drilled so the water would come in the floods and be pulled out. Across, the across up there, there was a long drop. It was always embarrassing because it was the main road of Kawaka going up there and maybe some kids coming through. Um, yeah, that was ours. So that was pretty modest. Yeah. Well, father died when I was five. Must have been a profound impact, your dad dying so young. Um, in my, one of my earliest memories was um, when we are coming to the classroom asking for me and the teacher calling me and saying, oh, go home with her. So I ate my school lunch on the way home. He died. There's a great story about when you left Parliament for the first time in 75, mm. or booted out, depending on how mm. you look at it, that the, um, the only job you could get was second in charge of a one degree. <laughs> <bridge. laughs> it was. Um, I was quite proud of that. There's nothing wrong with that as a living. But it became a, a, quite a fun by the Tories would attack us, and, and I couldn't work it out. It was pure snobbery. It was bloody good money. I, from 8 o'clock Saturday morning to, to 8 o'clock Monday morning, I got a 40-hour week wage. It was bloody good. You left school at 16? 15. 15. 14, actually, because mm -hmm. my birthday was in f January. I went to the freezing works. And... Um, Worked there. Why'd you leave school as a teenager? Um, well, everyone did. My brother went to the army. Sixteen. Um, that's the way we were. That was far north, of course. Yeah, and you talk and write about um, booze and cars and living oh, in yeah. Northland. Where, where did politics fit into that? Um, I led a double life in many ways. On one hand, I had my friends and mates from up north. And then on the other hand, I had the Labour people. Um, and I had two, 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 two sets, sets of, of people. Still do. Did you see yourself as a working class Prime Minister? I am. Probably some of my weaknesses are basically working class weaknesses, aren't they? Are they? What are they? We haven't got time to go into those. Um, but I imagine you, you mentioned those stories like 
sweeping the floor afterwards, your companionship with those uh, police officers who'd helped mm. you out. I, I presume you were saying, you mentioned those because they are the stories you respect about um, character and the good things about um, the working class, is that right? Oh, yeah. the, why you... the working class was great. Um, they were very good to me. Um, the Labour Party is really, we're full now of people who are upper class nature, private schools, and who now lecture to us about what we should do. I, I find that very funny. Do you find it funny? Yeah, because it's uneasy, because it's not true. Authenticity. Yes. And um, <laughs> they can't help it if they went to a rich school. They can't help it if they had parents who live together. They can't help. They've got everything and we've got nothing. But don't have everything and then shit on it and say, oh, we're poor. They're not poor. How formative was that upbringing for you in your leadership style as a, as a politician? Well, yes, it's, it's, uh, you are those experiences, those strands of influence are the mixtures that make you a leader and make you understand what's going on. And you learn a lot more from these messengers than you will from anybody else. Because these guys go in and everyone's having beer, they don't even talk to them, they don't recognise they have a view of things. Because at a caucus meeting we have a terrible row. Someone said, God, keep it down, will you? We've got the messengers sitting outside. And I said, oh, they're more Labour than we are, mate. They're more Labour than we are. When Mike Moore first came to Parliament in 1972, two giants of New Zealand politics were emerging with very different paths ahead. Labour's Norm Kirk was hugely popular, a working-class Prime Minister who'd built his own house and inspired his own pop song. But he was not long for the job or the world. On the other side of politics, Rob Muldoon was National's deputy leader. A hugely successful and aggressive politician, Muldoon would not be content at number two for long and inspired his own song. Most everybody likes so Rob, cause he's quite a man. And if anybody should need some help, oh Rob, she'll lend a hand. The young Mike Moore decided to make his name attacking his most feared opponent. Yeah, that's, that was basically it. Um, actually, it's an old quote of Winston Churchill when he arrives in Westminster. He said, how do you make a name for yourself around here? Uh, he asked uh, Lord George, and Lord George said, find the most hated or powerful man and attack him. So he attacked Lord George. <laughs> do you remember meeting him for the first time? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, we're in the... Entrance to Parliament buildings downstairs, introducing ourselves, and Muldoon um, comes up and introduces himself. God, I was an arrogant bugger. And I said, Bang, my name's Moore, what was yours again? And crushed him, you see. And um, pretty bad man. You were 23. Mm. They should have made me Prime Minister then. I knew every bloody thing. <laughs> 23 years old, and you take Eden mm. by. 788 votes, I think it Something was. Something like that, yeah. Uh, and this was a pretty safe national seat at the time. Friends rang me up and said, you fooled, you, sh you shouldn't have won. <laughs> You're going to be hammered in that seat in the future. Were you a bit of a, a, bit of a larrikin in those days? 
Yeah, I think we talked too much, a group of us. Couldn't believe their luck. Yeah. What were your feelings towards Muldoon? Was it fear, admiration? Um, it wasn't fear, it wasn't admiration, it was fascination. This guy could accrue so much power to himself and use it so, so strongly and disgust when he used security intelligent files in the parliament, when he attacked people the way he did. And no one's done that since. Um, it was terrible. There are people frightened of him. His cabinet were frightened of him. There's a lot of brave people now, but they weren't brave at the time. Do you have to have people frightened of you to a degree when you're a leader? There to be so t I think there should be a level of apprehension. Did they have that of you? Um, probably not enough. And Kirk, your memories of him? Well, I, mean, I, I always thought Kirk was a great man. Um, you're allowed to have heroes when you're young. And he was a hero, he was a heroic figure, a working class boy, um, with all the weaknesses of working class people. And he, I admired him and loved him. The weaknesses of working class people, what do you mean by that? Well, on issues of gay rights and things like that, he didn't know time for that rubbish, you know. Um, I believed in gay rights and these sort of things. Um, but he, what happened, what destroyed that government, we were very unlucky. We hit the oil crisis. Oil prices went from $3 a barrel US to about $12 a barrel US. And we weren't able to handle it. We didn't handle it. He dies, of course, mm. in office. Extraordinary. Mm. I think August of 74. Your memories of that time? Um, I was in denial, of course. He'll be back on Monday. He'll sort it out. Um, <clears throat> then when he dies, it all comes obvious. And I was at my parents' place, in, um, not in Eden. And I drove back to Eden. And I went round the rest homes in the villages, and the lights were on. So much optimism and hope wasn't mm. there. And I have that cynical bastard Muldoon take it. Um, of course, I was a child, it's not perfect, but um, we had hope. We traded hope for a few shillings. Muldoon won in 1975 and ruled for three terms in a highly controlled style, operating as finance minister and putting a tight rein on the New Zealand economy. Labor's luck only began to change after Mangere MP David Longy took the leadership in 1983. Longy would sweep to power the following year, only to be told the day after the election that the country was nearly broke and the dollar must be devalued. Labour's kitchen cabinet met at the Mangani DB Hotel to decide what to do. Palmer, Longy, <coughs> Douglas and me. That's all there was. And we had um, Treasury people up to explain what was happened. Um, and we were gassed at the, at the figures. On the phone to Muldoon, I was on the other line, and Longy said, well, you either turn the government over to us or do what we say, 
or tell them we're all going to government house on Tuesday. That'll scare the bastard. Oh, we'll all go to government house and, <laughs> and see the governor general about it. And the deal was to devalue. So Longy's talking to Muldoon and you're listening on another mm. line. And meanwhile, what's happening to the... We estimated to lose $400 million on the first day or something. Um, and so that heightens the um, anticipation of what's going to happen. <laughs> and you feel sorry for those new backbenchers who arrived all bushy-tailed to find out how hard it was going to be. Longy described you as incurably ambitious. <laughs> he did better than that. Oh, he, he said uh, some other things as well. Yeah. Um, were you, you, was, was there always that drive to become Prime Minister for you? Um, yeah. But I did think David was good. It was quite a meteoric rise. What was it about him? Well, size was part of it. And it was part of reflection and nostalgia for Norman Kirk. He was filling that, that space. In some ways, yes. Um, and perhaps we projected to David our own dreams. And that's all what a leader should do. They should receive projections of their supporters and implement what they believe in. What was New Zealand like at that time? Oh, New Zealand was stuffed. It was... We had a closed economy. And all that means all sorts of things were wrong. The import control system backed that up. The National Party won because of the farmers' votes. It had the import control, and that's where it got its money from, those businesses. And it was a, a disgrace. And we decided to slap it, get so rid of it. crony capitalism, effectively. Yes, it was crony capitalism. Yeah. And we decided, a group of us in the 70s, to do it differently, if we had the chance. Do you think that people even today understand why those moves to open up the economy were necessary? People would be hurt, but hell, we'd help them as much as we can. Never was the health vote cut. Never was education cut. Those core issues were funded. And it was a good thing. And everyone was in favour, for God's sake. Helen was... everyone. Because the... Perception now, almost the common wisdom is, oh, it was an ambush, Rogenomics. It wasn't. That's to make themselves look better. But they, they knew what was going on. They would, they, the talk that we didn't, we didn't discuss this isn't just false. We discussed it all the time. It was a very incredible caucus, actually. A lot of bright people with different points of view. Um, Cagle. Perkis, Geoffrey, Anderton, um, Preble. These people were, were virtue. They're worth steel. They're good. Did you ever feel that what your government was doing was betraying the Labour Party? No. No, I didn't. I was um, a creature of the Labour Party. I think we're roughly, you know, roughly right. What do you mean? All the things we did on floating the dollar, the things that are important, things I did in trade, opening trade, um, the trade round, the rest of it was all part of it. You can build your house, get your house furnished, and get your whiteware, your fridges, all your whiteware, for very little now. 
people go overseas and find it's more expensive. That's good for us. And unemployment's pretty low now. Um, but of course it takes time, it takes time. And the biggest um, misjudgment was time. You're saying that um, you went too fast, maybe? Yeah. Um, but maybe if we'd not, we'd not done it, we'd not got there. Um, and Roger did go a bit off. He went to acting, you know. He didn't have a sense of humour about it. He became quite demonic. Um, and Roger, and Preble, God. <laughs> Preble just enjoyed massacring things. What do you mean by that? He just seemed to get enjoyment out of smashing things up. About the controversy? Rail or something like that, you know. I don't think we should have sold rail. I, I went in the toilet and dry vomited when we sold THC. I was... Serious? Uh, yes. The THC, or Tourist Hotel Corporation, was just one company out of $8 billion of assets sold by the fourth Labour government. New Zealand Steel, Petrocorp, Post Office Bank, Air New Zealand, State Insurance, Telecom and more. The justification was economic efficiency and paying off debt. It was done at rapid speed by a government claiming the country was heading for bankruptcy and there was no alternative. Another 10,000 votes, uh, jobs <laughs> gone, we were in raw with laughter, um, gallows humour. Um, we were convinced for the first few days as we, when we became government that we'd be a th three-year Labour government again. Months. Really? If we did what we're going to do, you won't win the election. And um, we laughed about it and said, well, you know, we'll all be out of here before we're 50. Douglas is the only guy who has to get a job. Um, but we did what was right. Um, everything else had been tried before. Did you realise the social upheaval that would happen as a result of that? Um, yeah, but we didn't have a huge upheaval, for heaven's sake. This is manufactured history. There wasn't thousands and thousands on the streets every day. A lot of people lost their jobs, though. Right? Yeah, you're sure. Um, and a lot of people got their jobs as well. And uh, the roundabout wasn't fast enough. Despite the economic upheaval, the Longy government was making more popular change on the social front, declaring New Zealand nuclear-free and decriminalising homosexuality. Promising gain after the pain, Labour romped home in 1987 and for the first time in a generation had a second term. But things were about to unravel and Minister Mike would find himself at the centre of the storm. Was David Longy a good Prime Minister? He was in the first three years. There's more than one David Longy. Um, he was great at the press conferences, he was great at Cabinet, um, he understood it. Um, we all were left free to do our jobs, I thought we were. Maybe, maybe that was a management decision or maybe just rather go home with a big bottle of Coke and we handled the hard work. Um, the first three years I thought it was fabulous and then it started to happen. Why did it happen? Well, there were various theories. Um, David, 
He discovered fast cars when he was Prime Minister. He got on the grog when he was Prime Minister. He never did those things before he was Prime Minister. We always thought, gee, he's a good guy, he doesn't drink beer. <laughs> and uh, he was out there. And suddenly he discovers these things when he's Prime Minister. So I'm running around the world selling butter. He's running around the desk taking something else. And um, that's how I went. He was a good, there's a lot of good to David. Um, he should have held the line. Um, I feel I let him down too, that I hadn't offered him the, the support I should have. How do you mean? Um, maybe he was lonely and isolated. And we're all lonely and isolated in Wellington. Um, maybe he was just too isolated. He was funny, though. I mean, he was bloody unhelpful from time to time, too, by being funny about, about my good self. When I was going for the WGO job, he said, Mike, I almost got a, a mind which looks like it's been wired by a Ukrainian electrician. And it was bloody funny. Um, but it didn't look good. He, he says yeah. in his biography that he'd called Geoffrey Palmer back from overseas to be acting Prime Minister because, in his, his words, God knows what Mike Moore would do. Um, yeah, I, I found that quite hurtful. I didn't know that, if that is true. Um, I don't know, maybe you believe that. Um, he didn't do it all the time, though. This is a joy. I was acting Prime Minister a couple of times. What about this theory that's also put about that David Longy was somehow the puppet, the communicator, but that the, the real work was being done by perhaps yourself and Roger Douglas and David Cagle, that he was somehow... Oh, that's unfair. It was a relief not to have a Prime Minister staring over your shoulder. No, I think that's unfair. Um, but maybe he didn't have great powers of concentration. Good. He got he? bored with it did he? very quickly. How did he chair Cabinet? Cabinet began with a whole lot of jokes and we'd all tell stories hopefully he could use in his press conference later. And I wrote, I had a fair number of stories too. Um, and then we got down to it and just click, 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 click. It was good. So no raging arguments in Cabinet? No. For the first three years, presumably. Yeah, not, not even after that? Not even after. We went raging arguments. Maybe people uh, raged under their breath. Maybe they should have. Maybe we should have had it out. Then came the knockout blow. Black Tuesday, October 1987. The share market crash. Auckland followed the other major world markets this morning. Investors bailed out, putting the chalkies in high gear and the market in free fall. Panic selling in the wake of the Wall Street crash wiped more than $4 billion off the market value in less than an hour. Kiwis had been hugely enthusiastic buyers of shares. In minutes, their portfolios had been wiped out in a massive blow that dented economic confidence for years. Roger Douglas had a radical plan to revive that confidence, massive tax cuts and more privatisation. David Longy objected to his flat tax package, called for his now famous cup of tea, and the key relationship between Prime Minister and Finance Minister never recovered. As long as it provided a united front, you win. When you don't, you lose. 
and that goes back to the, the text paper that that, that um, David and Roger ran, of a flat tax. And think about that photograph. Who was there? Who wasn't there? I was not there. I wouldn't be there. And at that point, I became disgusted. Okay. The flat tax package. You're saying that you opposed it. Mm. I'm not in the picture and photograph. I would not oppose things publicly, not how I do it. I went along and said, you can't do that. I think flat tax was too far. Um, we are a party that um, has to be some feeling of equity. This was to cut tax from 48 to 23, flat tax, mm. a guaranteed minimum family income mm. and a mass privatisation sale at the end of 87 to try and lurch the market back post-crash, yeah. right? And it would have actually, it would have worked. I remember... Why did you oppose it then? Was, oh, well, what to be left with wasn't pretty. I said to um, Roger, why don't we sell the country to the Japanese? If we get a million dollars, three hundred, three million dollars, a million dollars for every New Zealander, we can do all we like with our lives. It won't work. There is such a thing as a country. There is such a thing as society. And it was just too big. And I believe in public ownership of a few, few things. That was signed off by Cabinet, though. I think so, yeah. yeah. But at that point... I th I'd been to see Longy and I said, I won't fight you. But, you know, think about this, mate. This changes the nature and character of our country. At that point, he'd gone too far. Yeah. Yeah. Did you agree with most of the thrust of the rest of it? I mean, looking back... Oh, yes, of course I do. Yeah. Yes. And everybody in New Zealand does. And every political party does, because none of the political parties oppose the basic tenors, basic constructs we put up. Why is it then that in a lot of comfortable company it's considered uh, almost a, a swear word, Rogernomics? Well, it's a Labour Party for you. I mean, and also Roger rather disgraced himself by going to act. Um, Helen and Michael Cullen had to pretend we were different. That was rather sad. You see, when the party attacks its previous leaders, it loses ground. It does. Australia's interesting. They always... Whitlam's on it, Hawkey's on it. They're on it because they are leaders and they're doing what they can for their country. And you haven't observed that tradition in New Zealand? No. I go to Aussie to feel comfortable. You do? Yes. Well, I used to. Got some good mates here. Mike Moore's primary role in that fourth Labour government was as Trade Minister, leading long trade delegations, sometimes for six weeks at a time. He famously promoted the Lamb Burger, a way of trying to say New Zealand needed to add diversity and value to its exports. Later, he would become a leading international voice for globalisation as Director-General of the WTO and also serve as New Zealand's ambassador to Washington. But as political writer Jane Clifton has remarked, he was like the opposite of Alan P, world famous, but not in New Zealand. Best thing I ever did for my country was leave it. Anyway. No, you, 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 you jest there, but, but never a truer word spoken than a jest. I mean, do you believe that, eh? Hmm. So what does that mean? Does it mean that 
the country turned its back on you a bit? No, no, the country didn't. Well, don't blame the country. No, it, it happened. This happens. It's, we're all adults, this is how it happens. We've all got long pants, this is how it happens. Um, but, for example, when I went to America, asked to be ambassador, um, said to Murray, you're not going to change the nuclear policy, are you? Okay, and there's the TPP, and yes, those are the two important things. Funnily enough, they are both Labour Party policies. Yes. No, I was, and I used to have people stay and members stay, and I said, well, you know, here I am pushing the Labour Party policies to the end, and they were. It was quite amusing. Who do you credit with making New Zealand nuclear-free? Along, I think, um, because he told the Americans he wasn't going to do it, and um, they were shocked by him, and they regarded his that as a break of trust. I didn't know that until I went up there. When you went up there, you mean being ambassador in mm. 2010? What sort of reception to that did you walk into? Some of them were pretty hostile. You always backed the uh, anti-nuclear stance? Yes. It became more than a nuclear thing. It became a symbol of who we are. It's what New Zealanders are proud of themselves for. So we can keep our nuclear position and have a relationship with others. And we've done both. Did you think at the time we would be able to do that? When you... No, I didn't know. I didn't know it was on or off. No, neither did the government. We had to work it out. Is there an anti-Americanism still in New Zealand? Yes, there is, actually. I find that curious. It's why people oppose to Americans. I mean, America... Um, we have different rules when we're dealing with Americans and we're dealing with the Poms or we're dealing with Europeans. And uh, we, we're too hard on them. As you see at the moment, they're a democracy, they're... They've got a hell of a lot of points of view. It's not one country, it's many countries. Its system is so complex um, that they don't know what the hell's happening themselves. Um, but out of this, Trump will be tra trampled because he's not a good man. If he survives it, we hold our breath and we wait until he's kicked out. You believe that Americans end up doing the right thing? Yeah. Yes, it's Churchill quote, you know, they do the right thing eventually after considering the alternatives at great length. Um, yeah. But they're incredible venal. I mean, um, sugar is one of the products that, per that wrecks TPP. America has protection on sugar. America wants sugar, somebody else wants so and so and so and so, and that whole thing collapses. TPP should be supported, but if it's opposed, it should be opposed because it's not going far enough. But this is as far as we get 12 countries. Bank it and go for the rest. At one time as an MP, you made a conscious decision to learn about trade and economics. Do you remember about that and about why you did that? I did that when I lost my seat in 75. Um, and trade was an area the Labour Party didn't think much about, so no competition. So I dug into it and I kept reading and reading. When we changed our policy to support closer economic relations with Australia, that was the key. And that meant a lot of our policies changed. And um, party conference didn't like it. 
um, but it was, was, was right. I was interested to read that you started to dig into CER as a way to try and take on Muldoon yeah. and then found that actually it wasn't a bad deal. Is that the way you read it? That's right. It was a good deal and Muldoon was very reluctant. Um, we, then we got in and advanced it. When we spoke to one of the former advisors for you, they said that um, trade was your way of trying to get the working people to get their hands on the loot. Is that how you see yes, it? Yes, that's right. It was, it was always about our people. And you can't get jobs or increase incomes without this sort of thing. The world has changed. So, um, there is no blue-collar, denim-wearing workers' proletariat anymore. What does that mean for Labour parties? That, exactly what does it mean. Um, there's members of, of the unions are now, what, 10% of the economy? And, in, <laughs> and the big unions are PSA and the nurses. In my day, the nurses' union and the PSA couldn't join the FOL. They weren't unions. Tell them to get out of here. They're kids. They have one employer, um, and that's that. So what does it mean for parties that are based on Labour in a world where that isn't really a driving force of work anymore? The trade union movement has to be part of us. We're part of that. I'm trade unionist. I'm a member of my union. Um, Still? Yes. And, um, well, not, I was last year or something, you know. Um, That's quite an incredible um, alignment, isn't it, that you've been the head of the WTO and you're still a union Yeah. Guy. And I'm sitting there at the WTO and I'm saying, yeah, scared something. Scared something in Bass's shitless. Um, we're a free trade uh, Labour Party. Social Democratic parties are normally free trade. What was wrong about the party was the detour we made to Marxist economics, and that was bullshit. We were here before the Marxists were here. When was this Marxist detour? Well, the Marxist detour of state ownership and control and all that, it didn't work. Mind you, not, not nice thought. Isn't it interesting, though, because you're a person who strove to be Prime Minister, yet you don't like telling people what to do? Occasionally I do. Yeah, that's, yeah occasionally I do. But, but in the main, people have got to be free to make their own mistakes. Um, and you've got to put your hand out and help up those who stumble and those who hurt. But, but in the main, you've got to let people do what they want to do, don't you? What should we tell people every day what to do? God almighty. Mike Moore has spent most of his life in leadership roles. He's seized power, had power ripped off him, and held the ultimate power of Prime Minister for just 59 days. The fourth shortest stint in New Zealand history. Well, let's talk about leadership. Um, and there's that great quote that, that you'll know well, and I think you've written it um, about it. Norman Kirk, um, what people want is a job, someone to love, somewhere to live, and something to hope for. It's beautiful English, and I've used that. Um, but I say, and something to lose. That means they, no, I have to own a property. They have to have things. This is, and if you're talking about development in Africa and places like that, they need something to own, something to lose. And when they've got nothing to lose, you have this, the violence and everything else. But it's a, it's a very great uh, line of Norman Kirk's. And 
do you believe that the path that you have pursued in, in politics has has given them choices? Yes. Yeah. More than ever. Um, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln said, you, you don't help the poor by taxing the rich to death. You, you help the poor by raising living standards and the, poor, and the rich have to take their share, otherwise they'll screw you. And then there'll be real, real trouble. So, um, yeah, I think so. Um, we haven't been able to put it all together, though. Um, there are missing parts of the jigsaw. Um, but overall, um, this country's far better off. Are you hopeful about the future of New Zealand? Yes, of course. Come on, this country's going great guns. The question is, as always in politics, is what happens to people at the bottom? How do you make them catch up? How do you make sure these kids um, brought up in terrible homes get a fair break? Um, but as we go on, the break, those who need the help is going down, actually, isn't it? What's the greatest challenge facing New Zealand? Um, getting race relations into a positive frame. So you have your settlements, you have your other schemes, and you keep going at it. That's very important um, because of a lot of anguish and anger about Māoris who've seen settlements in their area and not getting any money. And we can't allow Māori to, to end up fighting itself. You have to give it a place to go. And it comes home we do this as well, otherwise we'll be in deep shit. When the treaty settlements, the National's doing well on these settlements, but it's not going to work. What do you mean it's not going to work? Well, it's a couple of years' time where we have all the treaty settlements done and the numbers unemployed, etc. will still be there. The poverty will still be there. It will be good there'll be groups of Māori doing that, but this will not solve the problem alone. And we'll have to find again a um, um, new meaning of the word socialism and helping people out again. And that's okay. That's all right. So we go back to class division well, rather than. Don't, we don't go back to it. We're in the middle of it. So you probably don't believe in class. Um, I do. It's really deeply rooted in you, then, isn't it? Because you were thinking about starting another party. Perhaps, I was, yeah. And you didn't do that. You no. may well have done it. You could have got your 5%, presumably. I mean, probably. Yeah. Quite a few people came to me after that. I mean, the. The boxes of letters, just overwhelming. So on one hand I had the, the public writing all these letters and blah, 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 and the caucus not even bothering to speak to me, even those who voted for me, because they're terrified of what would happen to them. So what stopped you? Um, I'm Labour, I couldn't do it. People, well, actually, I think I enjoyed uh, a conversation about it, really. I think we had a couple from both sides coming in across. Um, I couldn't do it. How much power does the Prime Minister actually have? I mean, do you, when you were Prime Minister, of... acting Prime Minister, and then you were Prime Minister, do you feel like you're running the country? Or... No, not at all. Well I, well, I didn't. I was, always felt I was a bit of a fraud, really. I was there to fight an election campaign. Um, but... Uh, on studying Prime Ministers, it is who the Prime Minister is, it's the power they have emotionally, like the power Muldoon had. Um, he didn't. He took the power, grabbed it, and ran with it. Um, power of Kirk. We're all different. And you said there has to be an element of fear as oh, a leader. No, I had an element of fear there. Yeah. 
There's trouble when you're How opposite. do you frighten someone? Oh, yeah. Um, in opposition, you have no power. It's all bluff. All power is bluff. And you can't expel anyone. All you can do is give them less work to do. It's put them back a row, which gives them more time to plot against you. So um, the way to get ahead was to be nu nuisance and I'd give you a tough job. Different when you're Prime Minister. Prime Minister's got all the levers. How does political leadership change you? Um, perhaps you go into yourself a lot more and privately you're thinking about things and not sharing them. Um, no, that's not a burden, it's a joy. Um, you have three or four alternatives, you make the decision and the question is how do you sell it, market it and that's when opinion polls come in it. Uh, at the moment um, the Cabinet and the caucus starts with an opinion poll. Under Clark and under this Prime Minister, they have polls all the time. We didn't do that. And one thing about that Labor government, uh, we were bloody mad and we were going to do these things. And then we'd do what people say, oh God. So you make the decision, then you work for the polls. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. How much has the office changed from when you were there to, to what it is now, do you think? See, I don't believe I was in the Prime Minister's office long enough. I was only there for a few weeks. I didn't come to William. I hit the road. And my office was in the car and the phone. And we were working all the time till we dropped, till we dropped, to get the, get the vote up. Um, so you were a campaigning Prime Minister, really, weren't you? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Till we dropped. What's your enduring memory of that time? Mm, nothing. The helicopter ride where across the Rumatakas, where we could have gone down. The wind was driving us to the, onto the mountain. It was like a lawn mowing the kayaker, and it was. And the black thing was, and she was going backwards into the hill. I thought, hello, we're in trouble here. And started to read the alphabet and sing hymns to ourselves. <laughs> I started singing hymns to everyone. <laughs> was this some mad dash into a marginal seat yes, or something? Yes, into Masterton or some bloody where. And, um, yeah. What drives you so hard to literally take your life in your hands to, to hold on to that job? Um, well, it's your duty, duty and there's, um, our people needed us to do the job for them. And the greatest betrayal we can make of, of our people is not to care. Was the view of politicians as cynical as it is now? Do you think that's changed? You've got MMP, which makes it worse because you can't, can't get at these people because they're on the list. And uh, you put them high enough on the list, they're there forever. And to stay on the list, they gratify a few people in head office. And not, um, so they don't speak to the people. They don't listen to the people. Uh, they, they speak to the pressure groups. And that's how they stay in. Well, let's talk about MMP. You were always opposed to proportional yeah. representation. And so was Anderton, and so was Clark, and so we were all were. Uh, and now? Um, 
I think it gives us a more representative parliament. But I don't think it provides diversity of ideas or views. Um, the ideas are so boringly similar. Um, and governments will not... It's an ideal situation for governments not to make hard decisions too. And when I was talking about hard decisions, I mean, you tell people, this is it's really tough, don't kick me out. Kick, kick me out in 18 months as an election, but don't kick me to death. In the meantime, let me at it. I'm going to tear this bloody show apart. Bang. And people will respect you and back you. So you don't believe MMP has been good for New Zealand on the balance? Um, on balance, no. But people like it. They want a, a degree of proportionality. It provides the mixture of supporters. Um, so I think it should stay. Um, but I tend to like electorates. I like a person who has to stand up and fight in the football club for your supporters. We used to have win seats. I won two seats from the National Party. I never got a safe seat. And um, it was understood what would happen if you went to um, Papua Nui or you went to Gisborne, you've got to spend a year without pay. Or standing for Eden, a year without pay. So even I would raise money in houses, flea markets. We, we imported cumulus from the North Island, packaged them at a friend's place and sold them outside freezing works on, on payday. We had to do it that way. Some people argue that um, the actions of the fourth Labour government were partly responsible for MMP. Yes, exactly. It was our fault. They, they'd, um, they'd got us, we were rough on them, and they voted national, and Bolger was going to unwind all this. He didn't vote, didn't. And they thought, well, can't get rid of the politicians, we'll find another way of doing it. Constitutionally, um, do you believe that New Zealand should become a republic one day? Um, probably, but I'm under no immediate pressure. No one's ever asked me that at a street corner. No one out of factories ever said, a republic, republic. Mike Moore now lives the quiet life in a beachside suburb in Auckland. Even today, the fourth Labour government is something of an embarrassment to many Labour supporters and members. Roger Douglas, Michael Bassett, Mike Moore himself are known as the Roger Gnomes. But Mike Moore believes they are still part of the proud tradition of the party. I don't want it to be misunderstood, but I've got closer to Douglas and Preble and Bassett since I've come back from overseas. And we have an annual Christmas party with a silly old buggers club. We have a meeting. And it's funny as hell, I mean, Roger Douglas... His father was a Labour MP, his grandfather was a Labour MP, his brother was a Labour MP. I mean, and when they get a few aboard, they say, oh, I'm worried about our party. Has he changed his views at all? Not at all. No, no, he's got more firmer. Although he does want us to win. He says, oh, I wish Labour would win, I wish they'd do this and this and that. And he's quite like so, that guy Parker, and he's, he thought he did well on the campaign and blah, blah, blah. So, but when you get together, you still feel like Labour, Labour people? Uh, yeah, I feel I'm more Labour than they are. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, starting to watch TV again and watching Country Calendar. That's a fabulous show. Of all the entrepreneurs, people doing their thing, they're great. But ask one question: How many of those people on 
country calendar, vote Labour now. What do you think the answer is? None. Why is that? Because we're not seen to be on the side of those who are strivers and, and want to do things. And um, we're seen too much on the side of those who want to stop things or put more tax on the guy who's making money. And uh, that's not the way it goes. But I do think um, we've got trouble. What is that based I on? I think it's the basis of how you elect your leader. You take that leadership election away from the caucus. Um, the caucuses are primary, and the, sitting in their caucus, you know what's going on. And um, the idea that someone can not have support in the caucus and, and, the, member, and the leader has to, has to speak for that. It's a terrible idea. Are you still a member of the Labour Party? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to join now. I'm um, a life member. Yeah. You're a proud member of the Labour Party? Yes, I'm proud of what the Labour Party's done for people. And we can do it again. So you've still got hope for the Labour Party? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hope I live long enough to see another Labour government. Mm-hmm. <laughs>